Welcome to episode three of the Boar Sport Podcast with me, your host, Luke James. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be discussing the imminent return of the Bundesliga, a documentary series that we've all been glued to, The Last Dance, and Project Restart, the Premier League's plans to return to the field. Today, I am joined by Callum Ison, a social media guru from ITV, and Dan Lockwood, a student at the University of Roehampton. Before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to give a shout out to all of the Boar Sports social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under the title The Boar Sport and on Twitter at Boar Sport. There are also some brilliant articles on the website at the moment. Hop over to theboar.org/sport to see all the latest news and analysis from your top team of sports journalists at the University of Warwick. Without further ado, let's get into today's show. After receiving the green light to resume the 2019-20 campaign from the DFL, DFB and German government, the Bundesliga will return this weekend with a full slate of fixtures. On today's show, we're going to jump into all of the action, picking out some of the key matchups, players and teams to keep an eye on. Before we do, here are how the standings look after 25 games in the Bundesliga. So currently Bayern sit top on 55 points, Dortmund on 51, RB Leipzig on 50, Borussia Mönchengladbach on 49 and Bayer Leverkusen on 47. There is then a 10-point gap to Schalke, who currently sit in 6th position. And then at the bottom of the table, Paderborn are on 16th. 3rd of Bremen have played one game less and are on 18 points. And then Dusseldorf on 22, Mainz on 26 and Augsburg on 27. So starting off with you, Callum, are there any teams or players that you'll be looking out for upon the Bundesliga's return? Well, I mean, to be honest, I think I'm just looking football, uh, looking forward to football coming back. I mean, during lockdown, I've, I've missed it. I didn't think I'd miss it this much, but I'm so bored at weekends. So that's the first thing. I'm just looking forward to watching every single game next week. But uh, obviously, I, I'm a by Leverkusen fan myself. So I'm really looking forward to the uh, end of the table, uh, top of the table clash towards the end of the season. Obviously, we've got Bayern, Dortmund and Leipzig going for the title. Uh, with five points between them, with 13 or something games to go. And obviously, Munch and Gladbach and Bayer Leverkusen are also pushing in for them Champions League spots. So we've got quite a good set of fixtures to start us off, I think. We've got Dortmund versus Schalke, which is set to be a good game. Uh, Schalke always pose problems for Dortmund. Uh, we've also obviously got uh, Union Berlin taking on Bayern Munich, uh, which Bayern Munich should comfortably win, uh, given how they were playing before. But obviously, given that what's happened we don't really know how any of these teams are going to uh, finish the season we've got Leipzig we're taking on Freiburg who once again Leipzig you'd expect them to win that uh, and then we've also obviously got Bremen versus Leverkusen and I would like to say that I like Leverkusen to win but I genuinely do not know because it's been a bit of a hit and miss season for that team uh, they go through spells when they look unbeatable and they go through spells when they don't, just don't seem to get at, at it all so obviously as a Leverkusen fan there's I mean, two players I'm really looking forward to seeing once again, and that's Musa Diaby and Kai Havertz, two of the really young stars in the team that are just coming through the ranks and just impressing, I think, most teams in Europe. I mean, I, I would, would, would not be surprised to see Havertz move on at the end of the year. He's been linked with Liverpool, Chelsea, uh, some of the other big clubs in Europe. 
And to be honest, Moussa Diaby as well. I mean, he's come through this year and he's just been a breakout star. He's only 20 years old, but he scored four goals and got three assists. He's kind of playing in the role that Naby Keita did for Leipzig a few seasons ago. So they're two of the players from my team that I'm really looking forward to. But just around the league as well, obviously, if we look towards Borussia Dortmund, we've got Hakimi and Sancho, both massive talents that are both rumoured to be moving on at the end of the year. Obviously, Sancho has been linked with a move back to England and Hakimi will be going back to his parent club in Real Madrid. And I mean, he's one of just the exceptional talents that's coming for at right back. There just seems to be such a good level of play at right back at this moment in time. So there'll be plenty of suitors for Hakimi. And then also following on from looking at the fullback role, there's a player called Nordi Mukiele from Leipzig who gets forward a lot. Scored three goals and got two assists this season. And he just looks like he could be a great little asset for any team, really. And there's just some really exciting talent coming through that league, to be honest. Definitely. Um, Dan, is there any one kind of players or teams that you're looking forward to seeing upon the Bundesliga's return? Of course, this weekend, at the time of recording a couple of days ago, the K-League returned, of which both of you um, watched the opening round of fixtures there. So, yeah, there's a, definitely a first for football at the moment. So, Dan, any teams that stand out to you in the Bundesliga at the moment? Uh, yeah, there really is. I mean, uh, Dortmund's always really been my go-to, especially now with uh, with Haaland coming through, Hakimi, Sancho. Um, it's an exciting young team. Um, hopefully, they can sort of try and keep it together, maybe bring Hakimi back, uh, especially at the top of the table. We don't know how Bayern Munich going to perform uh, throughout the rest of the season, uh, especially after all of this. Uh, so, hopefully, Dortmund can push themselves up there. I mean, uh, I mean, you've got Nkunku in uh, at Leipzig as well. Uh, stand-up performer for them this year, especially after moving from PSG uh, as well last summer. Um, he's looking near the top of the assist table, so he's looking, uh, he's looking like a player to watch for the rest of the season. Yeah, definitely. I think as well at the top of the table, so Bayern Munich going into the run, and they've got three really, really big games domestically. And it will pretty much decide how the title looks at the end of the season. So before the end of the year, Bayern Munich faced Bayer Leverkusen, Borussia Dortmund and Borussia Mönchengladbach. Currently, um, Hans Flick's team are top of the Bundesliga standings by about five points, four points at the moment. So that game against Dortmund in a couple of weeks is definitely going to be huge. Um, Kind of what I like about the Bundesliga and I think what draws a lot of players to the Bundesliga and a lot of fans to the Bundesliga is the number of young players that come through in Germany. So, of course, Borussia Dortmund a few years ago signed Jadon Sancho basically out of the Manchester City Academy and people like that. So that's something to look out for. Um, one player with Dortmund who I think is especially interesting, um, and I write this in an article I've got coming out on the board, I believe on Thursday, is Giovanni Reiner, who is a 17-year-old attacking midfielder at Borussia Dortmund. So far this season, he's made eight appearances, mainly off the bench. He's a US men's national team, youth international, came through the ranks at NYCFC, and he's someone definitely to look out for. Um, we spoke about kind of the opening round of fixtures coming up. Here are some of the ones that I picked out, and I thought we could kind of pick through some of the storylines, some of the narratives around in them. So Borussia Dortmund in second place take on Schalke in sixth. That's going to be the first game following the restart. Also, some of the interesting games... RB Leipzig in third versus Freiburg in eighth. Dusseldorf in 16th face 18th place Paderborn. Union Berlin face Bayern Munich. And Werder Bremen face Bayer Leverkusen. Out of those games, Callum, what kind of stands out to you? Um, I mean, 
we've kind of got to look at it as the top five, two of them are taking on the bottom seven. So that could really set the momentum for the remainder of the season, seeing as they've had however many weeks off. To get off to a winning start would be massive for some of these clubs. So obviously we've got, uh, as I said, Bayern taking on Union Berlin. And to be honest, Bayern, the amount of Bundesliga they've won already, they look in a pretty good position being four points clear at the top. So you'd kind of expect them, if they got off to a good start, to really kick on from there because you don't really expect the nerves to hit them. Um, whereas with Dortmund, obviously, if any of you have watched the Dortmund documentary on Amazon, we saw last year that Dortmund had a collapse in the second half of the season. So really, if they didn't take the three points away at the game at Schalke, they could really hit a downward spiral and it could see them ended up maybe even in fourth position come the end of the season. Definitely. Um, talking about Dortmund as well. So what I thought we could do is run through the fixtures for Dortmund and Bayern before the end of the season as they are kind of the main contenders at the moment, although we probably shouldn't discount RB Leipzig. They are definitely in the hunt. So before the end of the year, Borussia Dortmund have Schalke at home, Wolfsburg away, Bayern Munich at home, Paderborn away and then into the month of June they also face Hertha Berlin at home, Dusseldorf on the road, Mainz at home, Leipzig away and Hoffenheim at home and I believe that is all the fixtures. So yeah there's a couple of really big games in there for Dortmund obviously they face RB Leipzig away from home which could be difficult and the other obviously standout fixture for them is Bayern Munich at home on Tuesday the 26th of March uh, of May rather which is a 7:30 kickoff. So there's some really big games there for Borussia Dortmund. On the other hand for Bayern Munich they start that will restart the Bundesliga campaign with a 5 o'clock game against Union Berlin. They then face Frankfurt at home. Then of course the matchup against Borussia Dortmund in midweek followed by a home match against Fortuna Düsseldorf a trip to Bayer Leverkusen, a home game against Mönchengladbach, an away game against Werder Bremen. And to round off the season, they also face Freiburg at home and Wolfsburg away. On balance of those fixtures, can you see Borussia Dortmund potentially catching Bayern or do you think it's probably too little, too late, Dan? Um, I think they definitely could. I mean, the Leipzig game and the the, uh, Bayern Munich game are going to be the real uh, telltale signs of whether they can do it. I mean, if they win them two games, then it it sort of it really is going to become a two horse race as long as they don't fall behind even more. Uh, I mean, after I mean, if they do beat Bayern, they're looking at being one point off of them. Uh, they only need them to slip up once more. I mean, Union Berlin is a place where Bayern could easily do that. Uh, they've been sort of a surprise package this year, especially coming up from relegation. Um, they're going to be fighting to kind of get to the top of uh, top half. Um, but yeah, I can see Dortmund being able to do it, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and kind of the first game of the restart for Dortmund is against Schalke, which is, of course, a local derby, derby a really, really fierce local derby. Um, Schalke currently in sixth position. They're not really in the hunt anymore for Champions League, but they face a bit of a fight to stay in the Europa League places, so that should be interesting. Um, as we go down the fixtures, um, the next one I wanted to talk about, a little bit more obscure, was... Fortuna Dusseldorf versus Paderborn. So at the moment, these two teams are in 16th and 18th place, respectively. Paderborn on 16 points, Dusseldorf on 22 points. And this really could be the end of the road once again in their first season in the Bundesliga for Paderborn. They're currently six points adrift, even at the playoff place, to remain in the division and a further 10 points 
away from staying out of relegation zone altogether. Can you kind of imagine a late great escape from Dusseldorf or Paderborn rather? Um, um, it's a tough one because obviously you really don't know, given the situation, how teams are going to perform now. And obviously one win brings them within three points of Dusseldorf. So really this is a massive six-pointer at the foot of the table. Um, obviously them coming up from the Bundes, uh, Bundesliga 2 last year could provide them really good momentum because obviously they know what a winning team actually is built on, whereas we could say Dusseldorf maybe don't. So it's going to be a really interest, interesting match, this one, I think. It will be probably one of the biggest clashes at the bottom of the table that we'll see from maybe the rest of the season. So it could be really important for both teams to get that three points on that first day. Definitely. Um, for Dusseldorf as well, who currently sit in the relegation playoff place, for those of you not aware, the team that finished third bottom in the Bundesliga and the team that finished third from top in the second division play in a two-legged playoff to decide whether they are promoted or relegated or stay in the same division. Um, so for Dusseldorf, they have a player called Rowan Hennings who has 11 goals this season, which is an average of a goal every 181 minutes for Dusseldorf. Do you think he'll be key in this matchup, Dan? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, every team needs needs to score and it, it's only going to help them to have him available. Um, I'm not sure if Padawan sort of have someone like that who's been getting them the goals. Um, I'm not too familiar with their, their squad. Um, but it really is going to be down to players like him to step up if they want to stay in the division, especially if during the playoffs if they, uh, they do end up having to go through them. Um, players like that can make or, or make or break matches. Yeah, definitely. Um, for Paderborn, on the flip side, it's very much the typical tower of a team really nestled in the bottom half of the table or rather in the bottom reaches of the table. So for them, the top scorer this season is Strelly Mamba with five goals and two assists, which is an average of 244 minutes per goal. And then kind of you only kind of highest goal scorer after that is four goals, three goals, pretty slim pickings for Paderborn. Um, kind of looking at the other end of the table, Union Berlin versus Bayern Munich. Do you reckon Bayern will re-emerge from the break, kind of energised and looking to build upon their lead at the top, Callum? Yeah, I think, I think they will. And especially given before the break, I mean, they was without their first-choice striker in Lewandowski, who probably has cemented his place as maybe the best striker in the world at this moment in time. So they was playing with either Arp or, or Xerxy up front, who, I mean... It performed really well when he was playing, but he's not on the level of Lewandowski. So really for them, it probably did come at a good time, which is probably a bad thing to say, but they, they've had the time to recover their full-strength team now. So it really could help them out in the remainder of the season. I just want to pose this question to you. Um, obviously, we do not know what's happening with European football yet. And given that Bayern Munich is still uh, in the Champions League and Leverkusen also in the Europa League, if that doesn't come back, do you, do you think that'll be an advantage for uh, Bayern Munich and Leverkusen who now don't have as many games to cope with? It's an interesting point. I think, I, th I want to say Leon's chairman or sporting director or someone like that the other day speculated that they expected the Leon versus Juventus, I think it's Leon versus mm -hmm. Juventus, um, Champions League second leg to be played on the 3rd of August. If that is the case, then that would mean that the Bundesliga would have already been finished by the time it comes back. But I think it's important to acknowledge that kind of 
the upheaval, whatever happens, is going to be interesting. In the article I wrote for the Boar last week, which is titled for anyone who is interested in Bayern Munich, clear favourites to claim Bundesliga title. Um, I write in that basically that Bayern Munich could very much finish the season having won the treble or having won nothing. It could be really interesting to see how they re-emerge. Um, before we move on to the next kind of clubs we're going to talk about, are there any players on Bayern that particularly kind of stand out as the players you most look forward to seeing play again or kind of the ones that you're most excited to see play in the future? Um, we'll start with you, Callum. Um, I mean, one of the players that I've admired for a long time is Thiago. And I know he doesn't really get the love that he probably deserves in the Bundesliga because he obviously came from Spain where the league was based around passing football. And under Pep Guardiola, I mean, he was just something else. And I think he was a kind of admired by the fans. But since Pep Guardiola's made this move, obviously, to Man City, we've kind of seen the fans don't appreciate his style of football as much because he doesn't get involved. But if you actually look at his stats, he just flies under the radar in that league. And I think he's fundamental to how Bayern Munich actually play. And I, I kind of hope he gets some more love once, once the Bundesliga comes back. Obviously, as well, I think Joshua Zerksy was uh, kicking on towards that uh, period of the season, especially with Lewandowski being out. And I think he's just a really exciting young striker that could come through the ranks and potentially replace Lewandowski in the future once he goes on somewhere else or retires. Um, and obviously, we've kind of now got... Uh, we've got obviously Alexander Nubel, who is moving to Bayern Munich at the end of the season. So it'll be interesting to see how Neuer performs because Neuer will obviously want to hold down that first position uh, spot in the team. But obviously, with this young keeper coming through who is hotly tipped as the next big keeper for Germany, it'll be interesting to see if Neuer can keep up his performances that we all know that he can perform. Yeah, definitely. Um, Dan, is there anyone for Bayern Munich that stands out to you as well? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, you've got to look at Serge Nabry if you're, if you're looking at Bayern Munich at the minute, um, especially in the Champions League this year. Um, I mean, he's, he completely tore Spurs apart. Uh, when they play, played them both times. Um, I mean, he's a quality player. He really is. Um, you also got to look at Alfonso Davis as well. Um, someone who sort of came from Canada, wasn't really expected to make this big of an impact as early on as he has, especially as adapting um, in, into the defence rather than uh, the attacking where he was in, in the youth academy. Um, he has it really impressive going forward uh, for Bayern. Yeah, definitely. Um, Alfonso Davies was the player I was going to pick out, just simply because it gives me another opportunity to go full <laughs> geek on MLS. So Alfonso Davies came um, from the Vancouver Whitecaps over in the Western Conference in MLS. Um, initially played on the left wing since he's gone to Bayern for, I think it's a $20 million pound move. Um, he's played at left back, which has seen David Alaba come inside and play at centre-half, which has been really interesting. So definitely... Um, Alfonso Davies is definitely one to look out for um, and if you go on Twitter the Alfonso Davies versus Robertson comparison is always fun to look at before we move on to the final kind of part of the Bundesliga section of the show there's just a quote from the article I wrote that I wanted to point out so Bayern's class smacks you in the face in central midfield Kimmich, Alcantara, Goretzka, Taliso compete for two places in the starting eleven. it's an incredible amount of talent that Bayern Munich have, and you've got to probably think that they should be in a position to really challenge going forwards. Um, the last game that we kind of picked out in the preamble, Werder Bremen versus Bayer Leverkusen. We'll start mm -hmm. with you, Callum, because Leverkusen is kind of your German yeah. team. 
Um, what do you expect from this game? Um, I mean, seeing as Bremen are sitting second bottom of the table, I kind of expect Leverkusen to go to a strong start. Um, obviously, they, they've kind of had a bit of a here and there season. Um, they was playing in Europa League. They progressed after beating Rangers. And they obviously got some great talent, but that team is probably going to be dismantled. So I think a lot of these players will be playing for a move. I, I can't expect them to stay for any longer. So I expect to see big things from Kai Havertz towards the end of the season, uh, especially with supposedly Liverpool sniffing around for an attacking midfielder. Uh, and talking of Liverpool sniffing around for an attacking midfielder, they've actually been linked to Werder Bremen's player, Borishka, who could be a good move, especially if Bremen end up going down from the Bundesliga, which would be interesting to see. So I think this could be a very interesting game with plenty of attacking football on the show, but I do expect Leverkusen to take the win. Awesome. Um, Dan, any final comments from you about Bremen versus Leverkusen? I mean, uh, I, I agree with Callum uh, completely. I mean, you'd expect Leverkusen to, to win this, but uh, with Bremen well within the reach of surviving, uh, or at least reaching the, the playoff place, um, it is going to be interesting because they are fighting for survival there, especially with a game in hand and only being four points down. Um, they could definitely, definitely uh, start the comeback at, at Leverkusen. Definitely, um, and I think I think as well with with um, Werder Bremen is they'd be such a big team in the second division yeah. if they did go down. So I would fancy them if they if they did make the relegation playoff. I would expect them probably to be able to stay up. Um, the final word I wanted to have on our kind of introduction to German football is a report that came out on Saturday was Dynamo Dresden's entire squad has been placed in a two-week isolation period after two of their players tested positive positive rather for COVID-19. Um, of course, all of the preview we've just done kind of hinges upon the fact that the Bundesliga and Bundesliga 2 will resume as expected next weekend, um, although that is something definitely to keep an eye on going forwards and it was something that we'll talk about later in the show when we talk about the Premier League's project restart. Now moving swiftly onwards to the second item on the agenda, the last dance, of course this is a series that follows the Chicago Pools at the pomp and ceremony during the 1998 NBA season. Um, I'm simply just going to open the discussion. Favourite moments of the series so far, Dan? Uh, I mean, so far, it's, I mean, it's definitely been seeing the attitude that Michael Jordan just generally has to winning uh, from the start at a young age um, in North Carolina to to uh, his championships with the Bulls. I mean, he really does carry the team, not just in performances, but in mentality as well. Um, it's, it's very interesting to see. You don't normally see that side of, of many sportsmen uh, and athletes, that, that real hunger to win. Yeah, definitely. Of course, for those of you who don't know, The Last Dance is a Netflix series where the episodes are released every Monday morning at eight o'clock, two episodes per week. And the series basically follows Michael Jordan's career, but it also jumps across kind of previous years in his career, but also predominantly the 1998 NBA season, which for those of you who don't know, was the last NBA title that the Chicago Bulls won kind of well, I was going to say with Michael Jordan, but just in general. Um, Callum, are there any kind of favourite characters or people whose commentary you've enjoyed the most throughout the series yeah, so far? Yeah, I mean, 
as a Lakers fan, I've always found Dennis Rodman just an interesting character because obviously he's had history with the Lakers playing a handful of games and then going AWOL um, and never playing for the team again. So seeing kind of how he acts in the background of a, of a club or a franchise is really interesting to me. I mean, he's just nuts. Like You, you can't really explain how he acts, but it's just a fascinating character who I kind of love seeing. And to be honest, there's not many people in any sport who can get away with being the bad guy in the team. You perform on the level that he did in that uh, Chicago Bulls team. You really couldn't pass it. And I think that's kind of touched upon in the actual documentary itself with both Jordan and the coach saying, we kind of had to let him do what he wanted at, at times because that's how we get the best performances out of him. And I just think that's a really interesting look into the psyche of a team. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think with Dennis Rodman, that's a good place to start. Um, He was the focus of the end of week three, so the two episodes in week three. And it was really interesting to see, in my opinion, the way that, as you say, Callum, the way Mm. that they managed him. And it reminded me a little bit um, and this this has just come to me and it's a little bit random, of the 2011-2012 Premier League season when Carlos Tevez went AWOL for two or three months and then came back and helped Man City win the league. Um, it's quite the story. Um, what did you make, Dan, of kind of the way that Rodman, obviously Rodman himself speaks in, in the documentary, what did you make of his commentary of what was going on at the time? I mean, Rodman's is different to any other player that they had. And I mean, any other player that I think the NBA's ever really seen, just with um, how different he was, uh, his attitude towards the game. He was sort of there one day, weren't the next. Um, but he, he was a very interesting character. And it's good to hear from someone like that, of sort of, especially from Rodman himself, of why, why he was like that and uh, what sort of drove him to to sort of stay playing uh, when it does seem throughout the series at, at many points that he doesn't really want to be there. Yeah, definitely. Um, what I thought was quite insightful as well is the clip of Dennis Rodman on a talk show or a sports show, whatever the show was, talking about mm. kind of his fashion sense and what that meant to him. I thought that was really kind of insightful, quite yeah. interesting. Um, for me personally, among my favourite moments of the series so far was the end of week three. So that would have been episode episode five into episode six was when they was kind of talking about the downfall, quote unquote, of Michael Jordan throughout his career. Um, and kind of the episode that they focused on was the North Carolina Senate election between Harvey Natt, who was the Democrat candidate and whoever the Republican candidate was. And the backstory basically is um, Harvey Nat would have been the first black senator to represent North Carolina. And he was up against kind of an avowed, very, very, very conservative Republican. And Jordan's kind of refusal to publicly endorse him was kind of taken badly at the time and still is taken badly among many yeah. people. Um, and I quite enjoyed as a politics student, but just in general as well, the way that they looked into that. So they had kind of insight from Barack yeah. Obama, which firstly, in the, in the opening episode, when Barack Obama just pops up, what on earth? Like straight away. The pulling power of this. Yeah. But they're expecting. Yeah. yeah. So it's a big deal. 
yeah, it's it's huge, and obviously it kind of cuts to Netflix's association with the Obamas anyway. But that was really yeah. interesting. Um, so that's one of the moments that really kind of stood out to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, any other moments that you kind of want to look towards or talk about, Callum? I mean, I think it was in week three when they were talking about the Olympics team, the Olympics dream team, and one of the most fascinating things about that team is the. Uh, Isaiah Thomas not being included and I mean I mean Isaiah Thomas is probably one of the the best NBA players ever especially for his size and it was just fascinating seeing how Michael Jordan was just that competitive that he held a grudge from when uh, they beat his team in the NBA finals and it just it's, it's fascinating because from the outside I never really expected Isaiah Thomas to be hated as much as he was I guess and given that it was like three or four of the teams and we don't want him in the Olympics team because it will affect us I found that really interesting that the players kind of had that much say on this team rather than the coaches which I think has kind of come through the whole series obviously um, with Kraus you see that Jordan and Scotty Pippen kind of bullied him a little bit even though it kind of seems a bit playful but you kind of see how much power the players in the NBA hold, which is, I think, a bit different to most other sports. Yeah, and I th- what what you said about the Olympics, so it was the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, I think it was 1992, um, where the team come together. And again, kind of speaking about the documentary just as a documentary rather than the content, I thought it was really interesting that they was able to get comment mm. from Isaiah Thomas about these things and about the walk-off, which was in the second week yeah. of the series as well. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, speaking of the Olympics, Dan, what were your thoughts on how they portrayed the first match of the Olympics between the USA and Yugoslavia, as it was at the time? Um, I mean, the thing with the USA at the time, um, it was even just the name of Dream Team, it was sort of they were just portrayed as that. Um, it was obviously going to be obviously the, the tensions there um, between the two countries, but uh, you've got to you got to look at the basketball, and it's just they never the Yugoslavia never really had a chance in the in the game entirely, um, and the portrayal as, as the USA team as the dream team sort of proves that throughout the entire Olympics. Yeah, definitely. I've actually got that wrong. It was yeah. it was Team Croatia. Um, the thing I was pro- yes, Croatia, thinking of yes. uh, was Croatia. That my apologies. Yeah, with uh, um, Tony Kukot. Yeah, so yes. that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, and how, as you said, with Jerry Krause as well, everything was very personal. And it was personal in the name of sport. But it was like very, very kind of, we don't like this yeah. person, so we're just going to go after him. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, sorry. yeah, it really was. I mean, they Tony Kukot. I mean, they, they didn't know who he was. He was he was sort of the guy that was going to be coming in um, from Europe to to play with the Bulls, um, and it was only really Jerry Krause's admiration for him which sort of led Jordan and um, Pippin especially to sort of go after him and sort of make sure that he couldn't do anything in the game. I mean. Um, I don't even think he reached, he reached double figures in that game uh, in points. Uh, I know in the second one, he, he performed a lot better in the final. Um, 
but he, yeah, just the, the fact they went after him, not for him, but just for, for Tony Krause's, uh, Jerry Krause's um, admiration for him. Uh, it's, it's really interesting just with how, how they think, um, just their hatred towards Jerry Krause, I suppose, um, that they're willing to sort of go after anyone who's associated with him and who, who he mm. likes. Can you just imagine being that player? Because like that's kind of like inauguration into the NBA, and you're coming up against literally hand-picked best team in the NBA, and you're playing against Scotty Pippen, Michael Jordan, some of like the best players to ever play in the NBA history. Like that could have been that must have been so tough to take. So the fact he came back from it and performed better in the final just says a lot about how his mentality probably was at that time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he he was drafted by the Bulls in 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 nineteen ninety, I think. Um, so it wasn't for another three years till he joined them, and a year after the Olympics. So, uh, given that he was sort of a, a a Chicago Bulls player at the time, uh, it's really interesting to see that they would still do um, that. They would still sort of do that at uh, with one of their own players who was going to be joining them. Definitely. Um, Dan, are there any other moments or episodes or things in the series that you kind of wanted to kind of pick out at this point? Uh, I mean, you've got to, you've got to talk about the whole um, Michael Jordan, the whole gambling scandal, if, 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 if you will. Um, it's sort of, it, it, it was seen as a big issue, I suppose, only because they lost, they lost uh, one of the games, uh, a couple of the games in, in the finals. Um but it really is. It's sort of, it does sound, like they said in the documentary, it sounds like a lot of money that he's losing, but to someone like him, I mean, it's nothing. Uh, to us, it sounds like a lot, but when Mark Jordan's betting 10,000 um, on a card game or a golf a golf round, it's, uh, it's really not the same as anyone else. And like he said, he wasn't in trouble. He wasn't losing his house or anything like that. Uh, it was just for fun. Um, but the, the sort of backlash that he got from that um, was strange to see that they would go after him like that, um, but it did almost seem that it was just to put him off of the rest of the rest of the finals, um, which of course we know didn't happen. And if anything, it did spur him on to to compete more and eventually win. I think what what the series does really well is obviously all of the material was recorded at the time, so all of the footage from the season was recorded and was going to be used at a later date. But then obviously it's been pieced back together, what, 22 years on from the event. So I think it's really interesting the way that they've kind of taken what happened in context and then kind of remodeled it Mm. to show both sides. And I think when you compare the way that the documentary itself portrays things compares to how the press at the time portrayed things, it's really, really interesting. So that's something that stood out to me. Um, Any final kind of points of order you wanted to say about the last kind of part. leading on from what you were saying i guess um i think something documentary does really well is both lights because um there's been times where i've kind of been like maybe i don't like michael jordan as much as i thought i did like he kind of sometimes comes across as a bit bit of a bully which i think is painted quite well because obviously he had a massive say in it so it's quite a good uh perspective to have to have both sides of the, the personality i mean you could just argue that it is his competitive nature which i mean obviously was the reason he became probably the best nbm player ever 
But I just think, yeah, I think the way, given both sides of the argument is, is to be honest. Yeah, and I think when we look at The Last Dance and we compare it to other documentary series, are there any way you think... Well, actually, the way I'll phrase this is, how do you think The Last Dance compares to some of the other really good documentary series that we've seen recently? Is it one of the best you've seen or is it kind of lower down the list? Um, we'll start with Dan for this one. Um, I personally think it is the best I've seen so far. I mean, obviously, it's not finished yet. Um, I did really enjoy Sunderland Till I Die. That was... Um, I mean, the first series, um, I love that. And then following on to this one as well. Um, it's, all, it's, it's That one was especially interesting seeing, as uh, we're mainly uh, football fans, it, um, seeing the background, what go, what really does go into, into creating the team, especially from the ball's point of view with the transfers. Um, it, it's good to get an insight in that. But I think it's just the superiority that Michael Jordan had um, and and the balls in general which sort of makes it more interesting uh, to watch as they really were the top of their game Sure and Callum where does it rank among some of the other documentaries mm. you've seen for you? I, I think it's amazing and uh, I think it's part of the ESPN 30 for 30 series which I mean they've got some great documentaries and I, I actually sent one to Dan a few weeks ago it's called Benji Um and just the whole ESPN series are great, but I feel like the basketball ones are just so good. Uh, and this one about Benji was about a, a boy who was dubbed as the uh, next Michael Jordan, who was going to be the big uh, NBA star who was shot dead in Chicago in the 1980s. And I mean, it's kind of similar to this that they get, they produce it many years later and kind of have like a critical analysis of what happened at the time. And I think, this is why the kind of ESPN Netflix documentaries like this are so different to some of the football ones, because the football ones, such as um, the Manchester City one, uh, the British Dortmund one, are then and there, they don't really look back uh, at it as a, in detail as these. And I think that's kind of why this one kind of stands out to me as probably one of the best ones, because you're getting the arguments from then, but you're also getting what them talking about it now and seeing if their opinions and that have changed, which is, I think, is actually a really interesting aspect of the whole documentary. For me as well, I, I think, and I say this as someone who beforehand wasn't a basketball fan, had only ever watched one full basketball game, and that was the London Lions at the at the Copper Box. So I'm hardly, hardly an NBA advocate. Um, I've really enjoyed The Last Dance and what I like about it as well is the fact that they've got so many different yeah. voices dotted in throughout the series so like obviously Barack Obama just being parachuted in I thought was really really cool um, lots of obviously incredible basketball players in there as well but also journalists and I think it was interesting when they had a couple of kind of the sports show hosts talking about mm. how it was portrayed at the time I thought that was cool um, in terms of where it ranks in my opinion I think it blows the Manchester City series out of the water, I thought yeah. that was a little bit of a vanity project. And I think that could have been the same with The Last Dance as well, because obviously this followed arguably the greatest NBA dynasty of all time. And yet, at every twist and turn of this documentary, something has gone wrong, or something's bad, or they're portraying something in a negative light. So you talk about Jerry Krause, and you're right, the way that the players treated him, regardless of what yeah. he did on the business side, was pretty horrific. 
Um, even like the playful yeah. clips when he's on the bus and it's like, mm, wouldn't get away with that now kind of thing. Um, and they obviously could have just cut all of that out, completely sanitised it and had this series just being a shrine mm. to Michael Jordan's greatness. Um, so I'm glad that they didn't do that. In terms of the other series, I really enjoy something till I die just because it's funny. Um, the clip in the second series where the new CEO or director is talking about the walkout music. I, that, that's one of my favourite bits of television yeah. from 2020. <laughs> um, apart from that, the only other documentary that I really enjoy, there's two, one of them's a film though, um, Resurfacing about Andy Murray is really, really top quality. And the other one, which I definitely recommend everyone should watch, is called Next Goal Wins. It's about the American Samoan national football team. Um, and it follows them through a World Cup qualifying tournament and the Pacific Games. It's really, really interesting. It looks at kind of American Samoan culture. And then they kind of parachute in this manager called Thomas Rongen, who previously was in charge of the Tampa Bay Mutiny in MLS when it was first started, um, who is this kind of Dutch guy who'd spent all of his career in America. It's a really great, really, really great film. And I do definitely recommend that. Um, before we move on to the final topic of the show, any last comments about The Last Dance? Just that I'm looking forward to watching the end of the series, to be honest. Uh, that's what I look forward to on a Monday at the moment, that I sit down for two hours whilst working, just go through that and watch it. It's just, it's just so good. Definitely recommend it to anybody that hasn't watched it. In the final section of the show, we are going to be discussing Project Restart, the Premier League's plans to return to action following disruption caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. At the time of recording on Sunday afternoon, the Prime Minister is yet to announce his plans going forwards with regards to the UK's response to the pandemic. So we can't necessarily speculate about what the Prime Minister will say in his statement. However, we can talk about the Premier League's plan. So at the moment, the Premier League has proposed that fixtures, the remaining fixtures of the season, would be played out at 10 neutral venues across the country, one of which is rumoured to be St Andrews Stadium in Birmingham. On Sunday, news broke that three Brighton and the Hove Albion players have tested positive for COVID-19 amid growing pressure from the league's bottom six clubs to abandon the 2019-20 season. Dan, what do you make of the situation? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I do believe that the, the league does need to be be completed uh, in some way or the other. I mean, purely uh, for nothing else but fairness and financial reasons for the clubs. I mean, um, not completing it, not uh, play, uh, teams being relegated rather than surviving, um, missing out on Champions League and getting it. It really is uh, a huge. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of money in it, um, and that could really sort of destroy teams. Um, for a good few years if they do miss out um, because of this and not being able to finish it. I mean, it's always going to be a struggle, especially in the UK at the minute. Um, I mean, things are slowing down. Um, I mean, cases and deaths-wise, but uh, it's nowhere near what it is in Germany and uh, sort of the better countries where it is restarting. Um, it's going to be hard to do it anytime soon, I think, especially as Brighton um, have now said that three players have, have contracted the virus. Um, it's going to be difficult. I mean, um, the bottom six, they, they're not going to want to play. I mean, um, they'd rather it stay as it is, obviously. Um, no one would want to get relegated because uh, 
there's, there's not as much money in being relegated to the Championship as there is in the Premier League. Um, there's not much pull, pack, pull, uh, pull factor for players either. Uh, they'll lose some of their players. Uh, it's just how, how it is. I mean, I feel like they're going to try and find every excuse not to play, uh, especially with the neutral venues being suggested. Um, I mean, I think that is the best chance that they're going to have to finish the season. Um, but I do think it will end up getting getting stopped by the bottom six. That's the situation at the moment, isn't it? So the sticking point for the teams in the bottom six, in the bottom six especially, is the issue regarding neutral venues. So a lot of the clubs are saying that they don't want to play at neutral venues because it will destroy their home field advantage. Um, Callum, what do you make of the argument that I mean, to play I think, I think first of all, I'll probably have to lay my cards on the table and admit that I'm a Liverpool fan. So I'm going to try and come at this the least bias I can. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I don't think that argument can stand up because especially given Liverpool haven't won a league title in 30 years, if they went and completed a league title, I think our last game of the season is against Chelsea at home. If that happened and we won the title, there would 100% be fans at that stadium celebrating outside, which I think given if you put it in a neutral stadium, that cannot happen. So if you put that game on in London, obviously you might get some fans, but you won't get the hardcore Liverpool fans that live in the city centre itself. So I think it's just really important, more more than giving the league integrity, but actually keeping people safe, which I think that everybody wants. If football commences again, we need safety to be the first priority. And I think neutral stadiums is one way of combating that because you won't get mass gatherings, hopefully, as much outside stadiums. I agree. Um, as as we're laying our cards on the table, I'm a West Ham fan, um, although I'm not a particularly sympathetic West Ham fan to the club's um, <laughs> current opinion, position on the matter. Um, so West Ham and, I'll be more precise, Karen Brady, West Ham's one of West Ham's directors, has made it perfectly clear from the start of the Premier League's kind of um, hiatus that West Ham would be in the camp of null and void or cancel the season or whatever word you want to use to describe it. Um, and West Ham stand to gain a lot from this if the Premier League isn't restarted because if points per game is used, West Ham would stay up on goal difference per game. Um, so it's obviously within West Ham's interest for the season not to happen. And one of the arguments being used is that neutral venues would take away some of the advantage that the teams lower down the table would have going into the end of the season. And I get it. I do I do understand the point and I do have an element of sympathy for them. However, if West Ham weren't in the position where restarting could either keep them up or relegate them and cost them lots of money, if they weren't in that position, they will say in Newcastle's position in mid-table, I know for a while that Karen Brady and the rest of the gang would be saying, no, let's play, let's get this TV money. So it just smells of self-interest, which I just think is pretty ghastly during a time like this. So I think that's something that's really interesting to think about. Um, One of the things that is going on at the moment, and I have it on fairly good authority that's going to be announced next week, 
is that League One and League Two are likely be likely to be decided by weighted points per game, which is a metric that basically weights your home points per game versus your away points per game and then gives you a total value as such. Um, with a local angle on this, if that does happen, or even if it is just normal points per game, Coventry City will be promoted as champions to the championship. Rotherham and Oxfield would also be promoted automatically. Um do you think that points per game or weighted points per game is a fair way to conclude the season if it had to be used then? Um, I think, yeah, I think, yeah. Um, it's going to be the fairest way to do it. Um, obviously, especially if teams haven't played as much as others. Um, it's going to be the fairest way to do it rather than just leaving it as it is. Um, I mean, especially in the lower leagues, I know there is, there's, there's money to be had uh, for staying in the divisions and that, but it's not as... It's not as much as there is, and there's not going to be as much TV money uh, down there either. Uh, I think the main concern for most clubs is is the financial side of it, because um, it can really be detrimental being relegated. Um, but especially in the lower leagues, I think it's probably probably safer to keep it as uh, weighted points per game rather than trying to finish the season. Um, it's just not going to be. It just wouldn't be able to complete for professional leagues uh, in time before before the uh, next season safely. Um, so I do think points per game is probably the, the fairest way to do it. Yeah. Um, for context in this, in this discussion, if the season was decided by points per game at the moment, it would see Liverpool obviously crowned champions, Manchester City in second, Leicester in third, Chelsea in fourth, and then fifth place would go to Manchester United. In sixth would be Sheffield United. And then in seventh would be Wolves. Eighth would go to Arsenal. And ninth would go to Spurs. So the only teams that would move up or down a position would be Sheffield United, who would go over Wolves. And Arsenal, who would leapfrog Spurs into eighth position. So that's really all that's for play. At the bottom half of the table, if the season finished as it is now on points per game, Norwich would be relegated at the first time of Arsenal in 20th position. Aston Villa would go down on 0.89 per game. Bournemouth would go down on 0.93 per game. And then above the relegation zone, you have Watford on 0.93 per game with a minus 0.59 goals difference per game. And West Ham on the same number of points per game with a 0.52 minus goal difference per game, which is very confusing and a little bit complicated, but that's the situation. Um, I wanted to, the next thing I wanted to discuss, um, and we'll do it briefly just because I found it a little bit amusing, was Karen Brady's suggestion on Saturday afternoon that one of the reasons why the Premier League shouldn't be resumed is because of the dangers regarding players contracting COVID-19 off of one another um, and the issue that you would have to disinfect grass after every fixture. Um, Callum, <sighs> I mean, what do you make I, mean of that I don't think anything surprises me anymore with Karen Brady, to be honest. Like, from the start, as you said, she's been team null and void or cancel the season. And to be honest, she's just going to find any angle to come at it, which I, I mean, I just disagree with, but that's her opinion, so I can't really say anything. But I kind of, kind of looking at, uh, and I know he came under criticism, but looking at last night with UFC 249 um, and Dana White and how he's dealt with that, um, I feel like we kind of got to realise that 
these players are going to be so well protected if they go back to work. Like, they're going to have the best doctors in the country. They're going to be probably isolated if they're going to have tests however many times a week. So there's going to be really limited time that they'll actually contract the disease. And if anybody does, and I mean, hopefully they don't, but it's probably a given that someone will at some point if the league does come back, they are going to be put into isolation. So they won't hopefully be put in contact with anybody else. So I really just don't understand a point about having to decontaminate everything like obviously after games but you would hopefully have like a week to get that sorted and it's just i don't just don't understand her argument that you have to disinfect grass like i I swear it only lives on surfaces the germ for have amount of time so if they got off the pitch and didn't re-enter that pitch surely within a day it would be gone i just yeah it just baffles me to be honest Yeah, that, that's my opinion as well. I think Karen Brady has unwittingly given herself somewhat of a reputation of being someone who will just use any excuse to back up kind of what benefits West Ham. And it was clear from the very start that, and I mean, I'm going in on West Ham because I'm a West Ham fan and I don't particularly hold the owners in in positive light. But it's just a situation of, there are teams in the league, Bournemouth, for instance, who would be relegated under points per game, but I don't think that's so much of an issue. But it's teams like Bournemouth, teams like Norwich, that if they have to repay the TV Mm. money, it's just going to be an absolute mess. And I think the thing to remember with, and I'll try not to strain to the politics too much, is that realistically, some semblance of normality is going to return at some point. Of course, we don't know what the Prime Minister has said on Sunday evening at the time of recording. But at some point, people are going to have to start going back to work. Otherwise, businesses are going to run out of money. And the same is the case for clubs in the Premier League. There's only so long that a club like Liverpool, which isn't bankrolled by an oil state, for instance, that can continue to pay the likes of Mo Salah in excess of £100,000 a week or whoever is being paid what. It's just not kind of realistic if there's no income coming into the business. So at some point football is going to have to return. And I think the argument that you see a lot on social media from the null and voiders, so to speak, is that they come out and say, no, it has to be null and voided until it's safe, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, Mm. at some point there has to be a pragmatic solution. Um, Dan, one issue with what many would see as a pragmatic solution was uh, implemented by the LFP in France, so the French Football Federation, when they decided that the League 1 and League 2 standings would be decided by points per game. So, in wake of that decision, Lyon, Amiens and Toulouse, so Lyon were, as a result, did not qualify for Europe, and Amiens and Toulouse were relegated to the second division, have all said that they are going to litigate or sue the French Football Federation. How much of a risk do you think that would be if the Premier League decided that they had to use points per game to promote or relegate teams? I mean, I think it's definitely, um, especially with the Premier League, it's it's very close down the bottom. I mean, especially with West Ham. Uh, I think it's Watford. I think they're, um, they're very close to, I think, sort of 18th, 17th, 16th uh, are on the same points, just goal difference that's separating them. Um, so teams like that, it would be very difficult to finish it 
um, sort of how it is and points per game. And I could see I could see them sort of following suit um, with Amiens and Toulouse and Leon, um, if if nothing but just to make a point um, that it sort of wasn't what they wanted. I mean, Toulouse that they didn't really have a chance. Uh, they they'd been awful all season. Um, I mean, I know someone who's actually from Toulouse, and it was, they were just saying how bad it was, and that they were just didn't have a chance. And this was in February. Um, so I don't see how Toulouse can sort of um, sue them. I mean, they can. It was, technically, they could escape. But they were 14 points away from safety um, with 10 games to go. So it's it's very unlikely they were going to. Um, but I suppose it's worth a go trying to sue, sue the league, as bad as that sounds. Uh, they'll be able to recoup some money that, that they're going to have lost through relegation. Yeah, and kind of looking away from the prospect of null and void or cancellation or points per game for a minute. One of the suggestions that came up last week from the Premier League talks about resumption was the idea that we could play out the rest of the Premier League season at neutral grounds, but only if the Premier League said that they would not relegate anyone from the competition. Um, Callum, I mean, what do you make it? It just doesn't idea? make sense. It, it, if you you can't not relegate teams and crown a champion, you can't. I've seen, for example, I've seen an argument from a certain fan base saying, "Would you null and void the season?" Which they voted in favour, yes, and then questioned whether they should allow their players to keep clean sheets and goals. And it's just like you cannot have the best of both worlds. You have one or the other. So, yeah, I just, I really can't see no teams being relegated. And to, to be honest, I'll hold my hands up. I kind of have a grudge against UEFA for putting in this deadline of when we have to complete a season because we're in living in uncertain times. And I mean, why are we prioritising next season? Which when we have many games away from completing this season, surely you prioritise something that's already in place rather than prioritising something new, which is going to have the exact same problems because we're going to have Fans probably won't attend games for however many months. And it probably becomes players will be out injury list due to COVID-19. It's, it's just, yeah. We kind of have to face facts that this is, we're going to have to find a new normal. And try and say that teams are going to get re- relegated. Have. Because. COVID-19 will probably find a way of setting a benchmark this season and then be followed through in seasons uh, in the future if something like this does occur again. Definitely. Um, The final kind of point that I wanted to discuss before we end the show is, and I'll give this out to both of you, is how do you think this whole COVID-19 situation regarding football will affect the future of football kind of going forward? Do you think it will change the way that clubs make transfers, sign contracts, kind of that idea? We'll start off with Dan. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I was only talking about this to someone the other day, but uh, I feel like they're going to have to put some sort of clause in in players' contracts where if something like this does happen, uh, that they do take a pay cut. Uh, I mean, it's... 
for the big clubs. I mean, at the minute, it's not going to be too big of an issue, but it will become an issue. Um, you've got to think of the wages that are coming out uh, with not a lot of money coming in. So I think they're going to have to put something like that in place um, with contracts, transfers, things like that, that they do have to sort of take a cut. I mean, uh, I can see sort of uh, the whole money in football becoming less and less. I mean, uh, the Neymar transfer sort of boosted all the transfer fees um, around the world. I can see this bringing them all back down again. Uh, with teams sort of needing to sell in order to to survive. Yeah, I I think putting the legality of things aside and contracts and the money, I do just think that this will have a massive impact on people's relationship with football. Because I think a lot of the time, people forget that clubs aren't just built off of millionaires and football players. There are people in the background that are relying on that income for their own families. Um, So... I think if players, firstly, I'm of the view if that we should at, at this moment in time, if people, we shouldn't be sending footballers back until Boris Johnson sends other people back to work. And once that happens, if footballers then refuse to go back to work, they shouldn't be paid. Because if I refuse to go back into work after we've been told we should go back in, I'm pretty sure my work would refuse to pay me uh, or take some of my wage away. So I think a lot of the working class people will start to feel kind of affected by how players have reacted to this and by them kind of taking their already higher power and being like, well, no, I don't want to go into work. I think the relationship with football will be massively impacted by people that are angered by how the footballers have kind of reacted to this. For sure. Um, There's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about before we end. Um, on, on that example that you just said, Callan, I think very, very true. I think there's a lot of players who are currently making comments saying that they don't want to return these kind of ideas. And it's there's going to be a point when they're going to have to because the Premier League will return at some point. Um, so that's something that's interesting to see. Although there will obviously be players who at the moment it's not going to be possible for. So I believe the Aston Villa manager said the other day that he's got two players in his squad who either live with people who are... Um, well, one of the players is asthmatic, I believe, and one of them lives with someone who's currently in remission from cancer. So it's like kind of practical issues with that. Um, two ways that I can see the coronavirus changing football and in particular English football. Um, the first of which is a story from Wimbledon, as in the tennis club, not the football club. So last week it was reported that Wimbledon are set to receive an estimated £114 million payout after 17 years of paying insurance on the possible effects of a pandemic, Mm. Um, which is incredible foresight from the All England Club. And I think it points out that while football has done a pretty terrible job of mitigating against this, tennis, on the other hand, has clearly done the homework, has clearly been playing the right insurance and that kind of idea. So I think going forwards... The money side of football needs to needs to change and they need to start insuring themselves properly because this was a ridiculous situation to find themselves in. Although it's an unprecedented situation, clearly other people had thought it might happen and governmental reports have said that something like this could happen. Um, the second suggestion, second thing, topic that I saw this week was, I believe it was in The Athletic, where one of the writers suggested that the COVID-19 pandemic could result in 
the idea of B teams or sister teams coming back to English football. And I found that interesting. So the idea was to prevent lower league teams from going bust in League One, League Two and the Football League. Bigger teams in the Premier League or Championship mm. might then look to them and kind of create a sister relationship with the club where they effectively become their B team. Which again, I thought was something interesting. Obviously, cuts against yeah that is a lot of football history in the UK, but it's something that could happen. Any thoughts on on that idea? Could, I mean, I think, could we potentially see B teams in the future? I mean, it's not something that we've seen before, but um, I mean, not necessarily B teams in effect. I think teams will need to keep their own identity, unlike sort of within the MLS, we've got like LA Galaxy two, Portland Timbers two. Uh, and teams like that, uh, playing in the USL, um, I think the teams will still need to keep their identity, uh, but possibly mm. just might be becoming more involved with a bigger team. Um, it's going to really help them, especially if this were ever to happen again, uh, or even in the future, the coming years, sort of loaning players out, uh, transferring players up and down the leagues. I think it's going to become uh, a lot easier, and it will be a lot better to keep the, the lower clubs alive. Yeah, uh, I mean... It's an and interesting way of that kind of viewing it. I don't know how it would work because obviously you could just end up seeing Premier League teams pumping loads of their kids out to the lower league teams. And I don't know if that's the best way to kind of build players. Um, I personally, I kind of, from kind of why they've been able to cancel their league is because of, their TV revenue. I really think there's something that needs to be looked into in that because at the moment, obviously, the Premier League splits their money amongst the Premier League. Whereas in France, I think it's split 50, 30, 20 across the top three divisions. So they've been able to cancel their leagues because them teams aren't relying on gate receipts because they've already had some income through TV revenue. And I think if we started to structure the TV revenue like that, we kind of wouldn't see this massive backlash from lower league teams saying we will be bust by Christmas because they will have that funds to fall back on. And I just think, yeah, there's something to be looked into on how the elite teams in our country support the lower league teams because I don't think it happens enough, especially, and then I mean, this is a different argument, but with like Pep Guardiola and other managers asking for cup competitions to be cancelled. I f- they kind of forget the position they're in in comparison to these teams in like League Two, which I just think we kind of have to take a look at now more than ever. Definitely. Um, before we wrap this up, are there any final comments that you have about the Premier League's potential return, or are you all kind of ideaed out? Um, I mean, yeah, I, do, I just do. I do want to see it back, but where it will have an impact on the health of other people. I think we have to obviously put the health. But at some point, that we resume it and we will have to realise it won't be. Definitely. And last thoughts from you, Dan? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, it'd be great to see it back. Uh, and to finish the season, I mean, the start of next season, um, it will be really good to see football come back to normal and sport in general, but it does have to be done um, at the health of the players and everyone else involved. It's not just the players, it's the staff, uh, all of the background staff as well are going to need to be there. 
um, to oversee the matches. It's uh, it's a lot of people that are being put at risk, sort of not unnecessarily, but uh, it has to be done when it when it really is safe to do so. Sure, um, that's an interesting point as well. In the Bundesliga, they're having, I believe, the number of people in the stadium on a match day capped at about three hundred and fifty. So you'd expect that to be the same with the Premier League if it does come back. But even 350 is a lot more people than you kind of immediately think of when you think of a football match. You probably think of the clubs having 18 players each plus some coaches plus Mm. people like that. But up to 300 is a lot of people in a stadium at one time at the moment. So that's something definitely to think about. Um, Before we wrap the show out, um, I'd like to give you both the opportunity to shout out your Twitter account. Oh, God, let me find mine. you'd interested in. Start with uh, Callum. Mine is typically, it's just Ice and Callum. Okay, well, straightforward as that. And then over to Dan on the other end. Yeah, mine's just uh, at Dan J Lockwood. Um, so feel free, yeah. If you want to see anything about Arsenal or any NBA stuff, feel free uh, to have a look on there. Perfect. Um, before we go, I'll also shout out the Boar social media account so you can find us on Twitter at Boar Sport or on Facebook and Instagram under the title The Boar Sport. If you'd like to hear more of my inane ramblings, a lot of which is about Coventry Blaze or Coventry City or West Ham or the Premier League, those kind of things, you can follow me on Twitter at LukeJames underscore 32. The 32 is in homage to Argentina's best footballer of all time. Um, that just about wraps up today's show. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you to both Dan and Callum for joining me. This was episode three of the Boar Sport podcast. And until next time, have a wonderful, wonderful. week.